1: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, and I'm uh, I'm always glad to uh, to share these. Yeah, I won't call it spotlight. Maybe I'll call it flashlight with you uh, in this show. It's a a beautifully snowy day here in Colorado, and I know that you're out and about somewhere and. I think Miami, walking the beach in that, you know, Borat man thong of you're showing off the body and impressing all the women down there. So hopefully you're enjoying that sun and fun.
0: Yep, you got that right. And before, that, we, baby. before we even start, I want to remind our listeners that today's show was brought to you by PAMA, Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. And if you're buying an airplane, if you have an airplane and you need to get some insurance, if you just log on to Avemco.com, mention Flight Safety Detectives, and you'll get yourself a 5% discount.
1: I'm impressed the way you changed that subject very quickly from the Borat man thong and sun and fun on the beach to let's go to our sponsors.
0: I guess I didn't do it quick enough. I was going to say, there, that was a heck of a segue there, John. So <laughs> I tried. I tried.
1: I just hope you're promoting aviation safety down there.
0: I am. Didn't I say that to you yesterday? I was talking about some piloting skills. Yes. (laughs) And I'm very happy for that. You know, I'm glad that, uh, you know, you're promoting the show and promoting safety. I mean, because that is our purpose. To that end, today's show is going to be a a very enlightening and and educational show because we have an outstanding guest today. In fact, uh, we probably going to need to bring him back for more than one show because he's got a wealth of information, an aviation, a wealth of experience. And uh, and I also owe him a debt of gratitude for the number of times that he has actually visited my students and the students at Vaughn College in New York City to try to help uh, get them involved with aviation and keep them motivated, those that are already in. So our guest today is none other than John Allen, former high-ranking, official at the FAA, and we'll talk about that in a minute, as well as uh, being in the military and retiring as a general. So, John, I'd like to welcome you to the show today, and we can talk about your experience and a whole wide range of subjects here today.
2: Thanks, John. I hope you don't lose sponsors with that bore, I thought, you know, but uh, anyway. Yeah, well, John is always... uh,
1: good for the recipient of my ridiculousness keep the, the show light and lively so we're happy it. to have you John it's uh, it's been a while since we've seen each other but John Goley and myself were very blessed to have a lot of years working with you in your various positions at the FAA and just our friendship you've decided that you were going to put some of your experiences down, not only from the military, but your time at the FAA, and then your afterlife after the FAA, you spent in an executive position at JetBlue. So you put them all in the, in what you call a book, but you've entitled it a memoir. And, um, and just in my perusal, I found a lot of the things that you address in there, of course, I can relate to personally because uh, I investigated a lot of the accidents that you talked about in some way, shape, or form. But you bring out in the book a, a lot of not only information, but lessons when it comes to leadership, and then, of course, trying to enlighten the reader to what goes on in the shadows. John and I talk about this all the time. You know, you see the front side story. That is the NTSB does an investigation, they publish a report, they give you the facts, conditions, circumstances, their analysis, their probable cause, yada, yada, yada. But there was always a backstory to everything. And John and I have had these conversations about the backstory, about the politics and the influences of those of the politics. And and of course, we have a lot of listeners who have written to us saying, why does it take so long for the NTSB to do their thing? Why doesn't the FAA listen to the NTSB when they write a safety recommendation? Why does it take so long to get a rule or regulation into the FAA and get them on the books and and out into the industry? Because it's all about safety. And, And you know very well that the moniker that is hung with both the FAA and TSB, and really in the industry, is that the regulations are written with blood money. We've lost lives in accidents before something is done rather than being more proactive to prevent that loss of life. And, and I, I know your book has covered it, but I think the listeners would enjoy at least understanding from your perspective those backstories. And I know that in your Career in the military. You were very structured, very disciplined. You aspired to the rank of general, which I will never call John. It it pains me when I have to call him commander, but you know that's another story. But you aspired to that position. You had a lot of structure and discipline. And then when you left the uh, the military and went to the FAA, did you find that same structure, that same discipline that you had in the military? given the fact that the FAA's mission and responsibility is enforcement and
2: oversight of the regulations that they create. Thank you very much, Greg. My wife refers to me as General Nuisance. There are two different cultures, the military and the FAA, as they were different cultures at JetBlue. A different mission, so therefore the the cultures are going to be different. So in the military, you're flying against requirements not like the federal aviation regulations, although they do enter into it. You're very mission-oriented, where in the FAA, and it's something we try to get across to our regulators, is to be regulated and not just cop on the beat. So they were two totally different cultures that we're talking about. I do think there was discipline in both, but their disciplines were uh, focused in different areas with uh, different objectives in mind. So they're two totally different things. When you look at
1: the fact that the FAA does have to have a very robust structure to be able to accomplish its mission, which is, of course, enforcement oversight and regulatory creation and that kind of thing. One of the concerns now that is starting to evolve, its it's been ongoing for a while. I remember my days at the NTSB, we were always pinging recommendations at the FAA whether it's from a regulatory or oversight perspective, the FAA is taking a hit right now, big time, over the Max 737 Max issues that evolved from two years ago, and their reputation is on a thin thin wire now. And I know that John and I, John Golia and I, have talked about the fact that uh, more more recently with the ASA and some of the other certifying authorities. They do not have or hold the FAA in that high level of esteem as they used to. And I know, John, you wanted to bring something up with John, too, uh, (laughs) uh, with regard to EASA that you just read
0: about. Yes. And and today's uh, Kurt Lewis, it mentions EASA has been having discussions about returning the max to service. And almost as an afterthought in the discussions, they mentioned they're going to do their own certification in the future. They're not going to rely upon FAA certification and just accept it. And that's turning the clock back 30 years. Because I remember in, in the early 90s, I worked uh, on a number of meetings in Europe and in the U.S. over harmonizing all the rules. And I, I spent a lot of time working with the Europeans on harmonizing the maintenance rules, which we never did. And I can understand maybe some of the frustration on their part, but boy, the certification of an airplane costs millions of dollars. And if you have to replicate any or all of that to satisfy the European agency after you just done it in the U.S., boy, that's a big hit.
2: Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. My take on this is that the Europeans are taking advantage of the unfortunate incident uh, with the uh, MAX and that, yes, we have a black eye with the congressional hearing that is a lot of uh, public maneuvering and throwing out terms that aren't well thought of. And so it makes it a very difficult position to dig your way out of. And and there has been a disagreement between EASA and the FAA for years on just your air transport Pilot uh, certification requirements, and they felt that we did not have as stringent enough requirements for the ATP, uh, and so they wanted to go their own way. Uh, EASA, because they do have um, a more of a force, more of a voice, because they did coordinate and organize under EASA instead of separate CAAs, has been growing in strength. And so they looked at this opportunity to assert themselves. And that's just part of the yin and the yang of international uh, regulatory authority. And I think the FAA will get it back. This too shall pass. Apply standards that had a black eye in 2008 from the congressional hearings uh, on oversight. I had to dig our way out of that. We, we put together SMS to, to move things forward. And I think as long as the FAA does as they've done in the past to, to keep working on new ideas, to be aggressive, be innovative. I believe they should continue to push the idea that the regulatory philosophy and framework has to continually evolve to keep up with the complexity and sophistication of the airline industry. It can't stay static, that it can continue to to put itself in a a leadership position, but it has to be careful not to fall back on old processes. And it needs to always double check itself because things do get stale and mistakes are made. So, yeah, the Europeans, uh, they're asserting themselves. They got this one. But doesn't mean that we're totally devolving. The, the, the FAA is totally devolving. It's just uh, another one of those um, little skirmishes, those battles that's transpired and, and will continue to work. When I was director of flight standards and deputy, we would every year, every six months sometimes go to Cologne and meet with our EASA counterparts to talk about. Establishing bilateral agreements. We were working on the simulators, the uh, regulations, and on uh, licensing uh, so that we could streamline things uh, between our different regulatory authorities. Um, I don't know where that is now, but uh, again, it's going to follow with the leadership. And uh, also, the administration, our government, has to assert itself in terms of what kind of leadership they want to provide with us working with our our allies uh, internationally. And we have to take our lead from them. So there's a lot of stuff in that. Yeah, that black eye, yes, there was uh, some taking advantage of a bad situation. But, you know, I do always, I'm an optimist. You have to if you're going to work in Washington, D.C. for 28 years. And uh, we'll persevere. The FA will persevere by continuing doing what they've done. Listening to
1: you talk about that, and given the fact that EASA does have a force around the world just because of their size, their responsibilities, similar to the FAA. Do you see some of the smaller certifying authorities like Transport Canada or others around the world following suit, given the fact that they, they have levied this distrust against the FAA, given the fact that we had two max accidents and everything is blamed on The relationship that the certifying authority, i.e. FAA, had with Boeing, I've been mischaracterized and misrepresented, and you and I can have a whole long discussion about the uh, delegated authority that's given not only to a Boeing but to other manufacturers around the world. But I think there is a a misperception, and I'm just afraid that you're going to have a lot of these smaller certifying authorities jump on the bandwagon,
2: given what's come out of Biasa now. Yeah, I would argue that the smaller regulating authorities are cautious. If that's what they're thinking, because do they have the uh, staffing? Do they have the uh, capability to do that? When the United States has a perfect capability of performing certification, it's going to depend on you know how badly do they want uh, the products that come from United States certification? And, and so this going to have to be careful consideration. I'd like to think that. Uh, cooler heads will prevail that this will die down and that there can be an intelligent conversation. And I think uh, having that conversation dispel some of the mistruths that comes out of the political kabuki theater of the hearings and, um, and, and put the facts out there so that both sides can understand what's available, what the facts are and things will calm down. And I appreciate that
1: because i pointed the fingers and and poked the bear with John when uh, we were talking about some of these smaller certifying authorities trying to take a stand that they were going to, quote, recertify the 737 MAX. And and my first question was, with what? They can't certify an airplane that's built in their own country, let alone you know a 737. They don't have those resources, as, as you've talked about. They don't have the technical expertise at all. And, nope. um, and then how are they going to go in there and recertify an airplane that they really do not have the capabilities? And, and they do have to look at the FAA and, and groups like EASA and Transport Canada, some of the more robust authorities, and tag onto that. But it's not like, and I agree with you, it's not like our FAA system failed. There may have been some relationship issues that were brought to light, but we've been certifying airplanes here in these United States especially under the FAA for a heck of a long time and we've been very successful with the aircraft that we have produced not not just boeing but all the other us manufacturers they've been produced and certified successfully and are operating to this day we got airplanes that are 60 70 80 years old that are still flying today that were certified under a similar process so for people to shoot holes or bullets at uh, at the FAA for you know not being You know, one of the the premier certifying authorities always pains me.
2: Well, you know, I mentioned in the book when uh, US Airways Flight 1549 landed in the Hudson and everybody called the miracle in the Hudson. My boss, Peggy Gilligan, adroitly said, wait a minute, it wasn't a miracle. It's got hundreds of years of technology, of training, of engineering, of uh, regulatory uh, transformation, all those things. Behind it, now I take nothing away from Sully. Great airmanship there. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff behind it so that all of those customers and all of those crew members successfully uh, got out of that thing. So you're right. There is a lot behind the certification. You're right. I believe it was relationships. And when you have these designees, number one, the government has to have the use of these designees. We have them in flight standards. We have the doctors who are designees. We have pilots who are designees. Back in the 60s, You had to have an FAA inspector in the front seat to check out each captain. Well, we don't have the staffing to do that. So you have to use designees. They're deputized by the FAA. They're better than the FAA because they do it all the time. And so they're very, very good at what they do. We extrapolate the capability of the regulator by using designees. You have to do it to keep up with the pace. And now you have to also, though, as a regulator, oversee that designation capability, make sure your relationships are not getting too close and making sure that the checks and balances are being maintained, that might have faltered. But the bottom line is, I think that our system is good. Our system is fair and, and sound, and it's something to be learned, and it'd be a really a ridiculous error to throw the baby out with the bad water.
0: John, you mentioned uh, a moment ago about the pilot certification, and the Europeans weren't happy about it. And and both Indonesia and Ethiopia are part of that European oversight, and yet in both of those accidents that we dissected, piloting skills was a major factor in the event. Not that the airplane didn't have some involvement with it, but poorly trained pilots, pilots' inability to recognize uh, what was going on with the airplane and take corrective action really came out to the forefront. So I I sort of get a little angry when I hear you saying, not at you, but at the Europeans, seeing that they have a better process, when it was clear that that process failed in those two cases. And it looks like it may have failed again in Indonesia with the latest 737-500 accident. Having a pilot knowing what the hell he is doing is vital to running a good operation. And I'm frankly tired of looking at, at accidents in, in certain parts of the world where the pilots wouldn't hold a candle to our general aviation pilots in this country.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's unfortunate we were working uh, in AQP. I thought it was extremely forward leaning, uh, using data based decisions to perfect the training, using scenario based training using line operational flight training, line operational evaluations and all that. It was it was excellent stuff. And and I don't think a lot of the rest of the world really truly understood it. They still wanted to make it event-based. And quite frankly, I've been a part of those check rides where a monkey could pass them. You, know, you just remember, you memorize, you go in, you do it, you pass your check ride and go on where we were looking at the startle factor. We were looking at grading at uh, the interaction between the captain and the first officer. And, and I think, a lot of that is lost on, on some of the rest of the international community. It might be that their culture can't quite handle it, and that's a possibility as well. But to say that we're not leading in that area would be a, a misnomer, unfortunately. And it's just, again, it's part of the, the, the tug and pull of politics. Uh, there's not only politics in companies, politics in the uh, in our own country, and politics internationally that do make it a very, very interesting endeavor in terms of aviation safety. You bring up a good point, John, and and I've
1: been pushing this for quite a long time, even before I left the NTSB. And I don't think we do a good enough job in incorporating societal culture into all of this. I saw it, I was doing an axe investigation with uh, China Eastern when the when the first MD eleven coming into service had an in-flight upset. And they almost lost the airplane and had to make an emergency landing. And there were a number of different dialects being spoken in that airplane, and the communication had broken down. But the bigger thing was the fact that when you look at societal culture, and you've seen it at the FAA, we had it here in the United States years ago when you had four stripers who basically ruled the roost. And you'd have first officers who would never challenge the cap, I'm not going to challenge the captain. He's senior, man. I mean, I don't want the retribution. I don't want to deal with that. We've been able to break that barrier, but there's societal cultures that still, even though they go through the CRM training, they all sing Kumbaya, they get their block check. When they get back into that cockpit, societal culture takes over and you have a first officer who will sit there and dutifully watch the captain fly the airplane right into the ground. Like I saw, when we did Korean Air 801 in Guam and a number of other accidents. And I think that that too has to be a focus, not only of the certifying authority, but you know the, the pilot requirements, pilot training, all of that has to be taken into account
2: because we haven't broken that barrier from my perspective. So the culture is a big thing, and, and uh, you know rule of thumb is if you're going to do a culture change, it takes at least five years. With AQP and with that pilot culture that you talked about, it took five to ten years. We were able to change some. We were also able to uh, eject some who couldn't come to terms with the fact that they weren't the autocratic boss of that flight deck, that they had to use CRM to effectively manage the flight deck. It didn't take away from the captain's authority. They were the decider, but they still had to take in all the information. You had to lead a flight deck or cockpit. And we were able over five to 10 years to change the culture here. I would argue we may not, as in the U.S., do a good enough job truly understanding the older cultures and working with them as to how best they can change their culture. If we were to take our ideas of AQP I did. I actually went in 1993. I went over to China and briefed them, and I knew they weren't hearing a word I was saying. One, I talked too fast. Number two, though, it was just so foreign to them. And I learned from that. I learned that, you know, I have to do a better job of empathizing where they are in their culture and find a way working with them to – Change your culture over time. It's not going to. I won't work by beating them over the head with what we've learned for them to understand it. So it's going to take finesse to work with our other cultures to help that change. I agree with
1: you completely because that was that was always the issue. Is that if we had a foreign accident here in the United States, we tried to apply our environment, our culture into the way they should have operated the airplane the way they should have trained their pilots or mechanics or or management or whatever and it is different i've spent a lot of time over in asia and that part of the world i saw it it's more black and white we in the western world live more in a gray world we make decisions on the fly based on information we're flexible and adaptable there they're a little more rigid Yet we try to to impose our standard that, well, they should have done this or this should have been done. And that's not necessarily true. You know, when we start dissecting, like, the Ethiopian accident and Lion Air with the 737 Maxis, you have to let the facts speak for themselves, as you suggested, in everything we do. And the facts have spoken in those two accidents, but the way those facts are interpreted around the world are like night and day. And while we think, you know, we have the logical interpretation, someone else believes they have a logical interpretation.
2: Yeah, I think that capabilities, I'm going to say standards so much as, as maybe pilot capabilities, pilot proficiencies, might differ internationally. We need to be aware of that. And I think the companies need to be aware of that so that training programs can be tailored appropriately for the different cultures. I think that that's a necessity.
0: But they don't want to spend the money for that tailoring.
2: There you go. It's always about money. And I agree with you, John, totally. And that if you're, and companies do this, is that they're always worried about their profit margin. And when they totally focus on it, I have a thing I just entered into my uh, book, <laughs> but there's the yin and the yang to a company. So, you got the offense and defense. On the offense, you've got a company pushing for financial maneuvering, investor activities, marketing, corporate products, new technology implementation, operations, and marketing changes. But on the defense, you've got the safety, security, both physical and cyber, regulatory compliance, brand, financial, and operational risk that you've got to be concerned with. And when you have a company focus too much, lose that balance, they're focused on the offense and not on the defense – you're going to get bit in the butt because there's going to be something, a risk that's going to get to you. And I just see in this case that there was, that in a lot of companies, there's too much focus on the offense and not caring about the defense.
0: And I see that in my teaching that I've done in India for a number of years and China for a number of years. I did some air traffic control work and I I did some maintenance training work. And to get any of those groups to come forward and be proactive in any way is almost impossible. They just follow the procedure as they understand it, and they don't understand it very well from what I personally experience, and then they move on. And then when something happens, our own press here in the United States starts going after our authorities, the FAA or whoever, and uh, blaming them for the faults that we investigators see that lie somewhere else. It's very, very painful and frustrating.
2: I find when politics is involved, they over-trivialize the art and safety of safety and aviation in general. That uh, companies are driven, they have to be driven to have a profit or they will die. So therefore, to have a healthy company, they have to strike the right balance. They have to have a strong safety culture to pull the corporate thinking off the ledge when they're doing something that might be unsafe and another thing too is that i don't think a lot of places do a good job and even the faa at times in teaching the understanding the philosophical intent of policies procedures regulations so that folks know how to imply them interpret them and then apply them so when you're in the tough situation you can react accordingly. And, and I, I see that there's uh, some problems in that both in the U.S. and international. morning, Toronto Grounds, Canadian 920, we're just coming up to Alpha, Juliet. A920, runway One of the things that has been around for a very long time, and
1: those of us in the industry know it very well, the media writes about it occasionally, and that is the, quote, dual mandate of the FAA, where, yeah, they have a safety responsibility, but they also have a economic responsibility. And those don't necessarily go hand in hand. Uh, I was raised at the NTSB that when we wrote recommendations to improve safety, we didn't care about the dollar value that went with whatever the improvement was that was necessary to keep people safe. But when you look at the MPRM or the regulatory type process, and, and, the, and the FAA has to look at what's the economic feasibility, they have to look at that money part of it, not just. The benefit
2: from the safety standpoint. Can you explain a little bit of that? Yeah, and it goes into something you mentioned earlier. Why does it take so long? So, to do a regulation, it takes at a minimum 10 years, unless there's something really unusual. And I had one of those occurrences during the virus, usually 10 years. The reason it takes that long is that you might have the best idea for a regulation. And there's someone out there in our great land of ours who would disagree with you. And we are a democracy. And that one voice has the right to have their voice, have their say, and have the government consider it and then either accommodate it or dispense with it but explain why. That's a big process. I, I worked on the air tour rule. That language for 14 years. We did public hearings out in, in Las Vegas. We had to have security there because they carry guns. We have a lot of work, not only with public hearings to to accommodate all of the concerns and complaints and all that that might come from the public, from industry, and all that. But then you have to do a regoval. A regoval is that you have to do this voodoo mathematics to figure out mathematically is this rule the burden of the rule going to offset the benefit the safety benefit and it's a really tough job to do and there's been some good rules that never saw the light of day because they couldn't overcome the regaval where they couldn't show that numerically dollars wise the benefit of the rule would offset the cost to the public. And that takes a long time. And then even after it goes out of the FAA, it goes up to the Department of Transportation. There's lots of lawyers involved and things get rewritten. And so it is ugly sausage making for the rules. And you're right, Greg, we in the FAA, when we had our top 10 anymore, our rules are predicated on the uh, reauthorization bills that come out because Congress says, okay, you have to do these things. Well, that takes all of our manpower to accommodate what Congress is telling us to do. Sorry, I still say us with the FAA. Can't help it. Uh, John and and, I do the same thing. Okay, (laughs) yeah. um, I haven't changed my prison stripe. sorry. And so you have to accommodate all those things. And so now I will tell you, that the NTSB, I saw you on another podcast about should the NTSB be there, it needs to be there. Because now with SMS, it's written in the rule that the, the companies have to address anything that is uh, that might be of risk. Well, if an NTSB comes down with, with several recommendations, all of them have to be addressed by all the airlines who are in SMS now. So the NTSB has a lot more bite than they had in the past. But it doesn't mean it has to be a rule, because with SMS, yeah. they have to address that risk. So that's all how that is, is going on. Yeah. And and one of the things that
1: come out of the NTSB, though, is the FAA did a vetting process to see its practicality and, and how it could it be did. implemented. And while those people out there Will say, well, there should be no price on safety. The FAA should just implement it and not worry about what it costs to implement because it's going to save people's lives. We saw this whole argument when we were doing value jet with smoke detection, fire suppression in cargo holds, and and the you know, the the fight that went back and forth and and a variety of other things. But now if the board puts out a recommendation and the airlines have to implement it under their SMS program. They really got to vet these because some of the stuff that the board puts out, while it looks good right now, it creates problems down the road in the future. So
0: you have an immediate solution to an immediate problem, but you've created future problems with this quote solution. Sometimes that solution is overreaching a part of the NTSB. I know that I got chastised more than once saying that we didn't need to go as far as they wanted to go, staff being Bernie Loeb and company. And I, and they chastised it me that they had to go further in order to uh, when they negotiated, it's going to come back to a more reasonable position. And I, I never really uh, I never liked that. I bought into it, but I never really liked that. So, as you guys know, eighty uh, percent, roughly eighty percent of the NTSB
2: recommendations came down to my organization, flight standards, and of those, eighty percent of those went to my air transportation division alone. So they were always over inundated with recommendations, and they would gripe naturally and complain that a lot of workload. And I said, "Hey, I said because the NTSB, we have a decent budget, or at least a reasonable budget. If we didn't have NTSB recommendations," The administration would say, well, it's so safe, we don't need to give the FAA that much of a budget, but because the NTSB highlighted all these things, that helped our budget situation. Now, you're right. There are many things that came down that we did assess. It was, let's say, advances in technology and a lot of things that we say, you know, we just, we can't put this in the rule because we can't pass the regoval because not in your side, but when we do a regoval, we are hit by a bunch of, a lot of companies and congressmen and senators who say, "Wait a minute, this will undermine my constituency," or "We'll get rid of some important air service at a small airport if this rule should come out." So there's a lot of complexity to this stuff, and it is looked at very, very thoroughly. So on the surface, simplistically, it says, "Oh, they're being very callous, and that rule should have come out because safety is permanent. Well, it is not that simple. Oh, yeah. it is. Safety is number one. Our public is our number one customer, but. There's a lot of complexity to it.
1: And see, that's the backstory that John and I are always highlighting for for the listeners. And that is there is always something in the shadows. There's always a backstory that undermines what we're trying to do on the front side of promoting or enhancing aviation safety. And let me just follow on to that. Of course, there was the FAA has gone through and had gone through over the years this wave of kinder, gentler philosophy versus compliance through enforcement, safety through compliance, and I know you address that in your book, which is titled Airline Safety, is not by accident. Well, maybe sort of, I'll explain. Mm-hmm. And that's a good way to put it, because while you can make that bold statement, that backstory is, well, maybe sort of, <laughs> because there's there's all this under underpinning. But For a very long time in this industry, it's always been, well, I'll get them to comply through enforcement. Well, you go in there with a heavy hammer when they go in with that attitude. Now you got a company that says, okay, catch me if you can. And it's a vicious cycle. Versus, I remember when the uh, the FAA took on there. Well, we'll be a kinder, gentler. We'll go in there. We'll talk to them. We'll try to negotiate with them. We'll just slap their hand rather than come down with the the big hammer fine, and. Again, it works for a while, and then it just disappears into the ether. What's your take on all of that? Do you really get the compliance that you need by being heavy-handed, or is it more a process of negotiation and working with the, quote, customer, who in this case are the airlines or the maintenance facilities, things like that? God bless you for giving me that
2: softball. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, so it actually stemmed from a philosophy I had when I administered check rides in the military: is that if I'm going to give it down, what is going to happen? Who's going to benefit? What's the what's the rationale here? And so. When I got to the FAA, and when I got selected as director, my sons came to me and said, hey, why are you called 80% Allen? I said, what are you talking about? Well, you know, those derogatory websites I was referred to as 80% Allen because I made the quote, and I believe this, about at least 80% of the enforcement cases we had on the docket shouldn't have been there. And what was happening is that in flight standards, I was having to take part of my budget for inspectors and paying for seven lawyers so that they could adjudicate the enforcement packages. On top of that, we had hundreds of cases every year that went stale and went away. And some of them were really needed because they were going after bad people. After two years, they go away. So I said, there's got to be a better way. And, And I was sitting at my desk, and one day I saw an enforcement case that just got me incensed. Some poor kid, a student pilot, took off, and his wing clipped, a uh, temporary flight restriction because the president was maybe going someplace, I don't know. But anyway, the kid came back, got a call from the FAA, said, I'm Inspector so-and-so, and I'm sorry to tell you that your student pilot certificate has been suspended for 90 days. Now I said, okay, what do you think that did? One, it made this kid who needs to be flying, is on the ground and not continue to fly. Number two, it makes him afraid of government and now makes him a safety hater instead of a safety advocate. I said, That's nonsense. So I saw so many enforcement cases on my desk that said, well, by unfortunate error or by accident, I said those should be all thrown out because people will make mistakes. And as long as they're honest about it and they learn from it, that's good. We've got plenty of bad guys. So what I was trying to do actually was by doing the right thing was to lean out our enforcement process so that they're not over inundated with all of these other nonsensical enforcement cases so that our, our attorneys could get to the bad ones, to the bad people, to make them more efficient. The attorneys at the FA did not like me for this one. I got it because they're not bred that way. They're not trained that way. But the way I looked at it, we didn't have enough resources for enough lawyers to get to the cases, and so I needed to lean it out and make it more efficient. So it came up with the compliance philosophy, and I retired before it came tuition. But I give Peggy Gilligan, and Michael Huerta, uh, John Duncan. They took up the mantle. They took it on and were used courage to get it forward to make the regulatory and enforcement system more apropos. Now, to your point, I don't think strict enforcement helps anything. Talk about this in the book too. I was squadron commander. I had a flight, my most experienced pilots, engineers. Loadmasters take off on the wrong runway up in New Jersey. And people are telling me, oh, I was a squadron commander. They say, oh, you need to yank their wings, or, oh, you need to put them in the simulator. I said, think if I put them in the simulator, they do the same thing. They're not that stupid. So I said, no, I'm going to be more inventive. So I asked them all. Everybody hates public speaking. I asked the whole crew to get up in front of the whole squadron during a training weekend and tell them not just what happened, but why it happened, how it happened, what they were thinking, how they were led down the primrose path. When they give that presentation and they hated doing it, you can hear a pin drop in that in that auditorium. And we never had another wrong runway discursion after that. Now, I'm sure some were led down the primrose path. I'd like to think that the chain of causal factors were broken because they remembered that discussion. There's a lot of other things that could be done than just enforcement to get the point across. Gene Cernan, last guy to walk on the moon, Call me up said, John, I, I got to tell you something. I'm embarrassed. I ground looped my airplane. And I don't want the press and I don't want, you know, with, regulate, with uh, some enforcement and all that. I said, tell you what, Gene, I said, you write an article for our safety magazine, then don't worry about the enforcement because we will benefit more by safety by you writing an article about how you can do it. The last guy walked on the moon, it can happen to him. That's what we did. And I would argue that better safety was served that way than by strict enforcement.
0: I did something similar with maintenance people that made mistakes, that they had to develop a a 15, 20-minute pitch to all the people in their crew, telling their crew how they screwed up. You know, nobody wanted to do it. It was embarrassing. Nobody wanted to do it. And more importantly, nobody in the crew wanted to be the next one to do it. So they paid attention.
2: Yeah, well, that's what Jeff Blue. I uh, talked to him. And said someone had an unfortunate incident. I said turn them into safety advocates and not safety adversaries. Have them get up in front of their peers and say, "This is what happened. It can happen to you." I argue you'll get a lot more in terms of safety benefit than just strictly using enforcement measures.
1: You need to go back to the FAA and pound that into them because uh, they've gone back to compliance through enforcement. And I've got a lot of folks that are just very disheartened by the fact that, you know, minor events are resulting in, you know, formal check rights, uh, certificate revocations and suspensions. And it's just like, for what? I mean, (laughs) it wasn't that egregious. It was a mistake. I mean, we've learned from it and now they want to put me on the ground or take my certificate or whatever. And it's just, uh, it's just sad because I like that philosophy because like you said, You can get more out of it because it makes them research whatever happened to them, and then they have to present it because no one, no one on the face of this earth is immune to an incident or an accident. And I think that this should be a learning experience, just like everything else we do in aviation.
0: Before I go, I'd like to remind everybody that this show is brought to you by PAMA and by Afemco Insurance. And if you have an airplane and you're coming up for renewal, or if you just bought an airplane and need insurance, give Avemco a call. 888-879-0389 or log on to avemco.com and mention Flight Safety Detectives and you can get yourself a 5% discount just for listening. We also appreciate our patron sponsors who also helped defray the cost to produce these shows. You know, Greg and I do these shows out of labor of love. So any help in offsetting these costs will be and is greatly appreciated. And anyone who contributes via the Patreon method, we will give you a wristband that says flight safety detectives. And please, please remember to remain safe in your personal life. Wear masks. Wash your hands. If you meet with family members, don't take your mask off. We saw what happened over the holidays with all the family gatherings. We had a huge spike. The number of deaths spiked up. This disease is just terrible and it's destroying lots of portions of our lives. So please exercise all the cautions. Wear masks, wash your hands, don't meet in large groups, maintain social distancing. And if you're flying, please stay safe. Do a thorough pre flight before you you fly. We've talked about the pre-flight issue. We're seeing more and more problems with the pre-flights since people have been away from flying and they come back out and they're not doing a very thorough pre-flight. And we've seen some accidents as a result of it. So please do a very thorough pre-flight and pay attention to the details when you're flying. Don't assume anything. And we want you packed on the show. We don't want to lose our listeners. And so having said all that, Please, fly safe.
2: To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.